This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. People of Earth, attention. This is the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. This is the American Senior Radio Network. It is right now 7.03 in the Jerry Gall Show, live and direct from the Kiggins Theater in Vancouver, Washington. And coming up next, right here on ASRN, Washington State and the CMDC program from the live historic Kiggins Theater, or live from the historic Kiggins Theater, and the Willamette Radio Workshop and Sam Mowry, and Reimagined Radio, City of Weird, Otherly, Otherwise, Otherworldly Tales, presented for your listening pleasure as short radio dramas take place. That's tonight. We have 500-plus listeners in 30-plus countries, and we're going to go live. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the historic Kiggins Theater. I'm Sam Mowry, the director of the Willamette Radio Workshop, and it's my distinct pleasure to introduce to you Mr. John Barber. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the historic Kiggins Theater in the heart of the Arts District in downtown Vancouver, USA. Just so you know, we are broadcasting live and direct tonight without benefit of commercial interruption. Our thanks to Mr. Gerald Gall of American Senior Radio Network, who's in the back. Uh, during our last performance... During our last performance, uh, we reached over 32 countries around the world where 532 people gave a listen. Uh, Gerald tells me that already we're over 500 and over 20 countries are tuned in to what's happening tonight. So, part of something. So wherever you are listening tonight, please drop us a line and tell us where you heard the show. Tonight we present City of Weird, several short radio plays adapted from the anthology of the same name by Cynthia J. McGeehan and performed for you by the award-winning and internationally respected Willamette Radio Workshop under the direction of Sam A. Mowry. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Laura Stanfield. She's the publisher at Forest uh, City Press, publisher of City of Weird. And Gigi Little, the editor of the volume, is also here. And I understand that some of the authors of the plays, adaptations, as you're going to see tonight, are with us tonight. So welcome, all of you. 
Tonight's performance is brought to you by Reimagined Radio, a research and performance project that I lead as part of my position within the creative media and digital culture program at Washington State University, Vancouver. The idea is to create vintage radio dramas before live audiences. Recreating these ephemeral sound experiences encourages listeners to explore and experience a lost sound culture as well as the conditions under which these sound-based stories were originally created. We are partially funded by a grant from the Coog Parents Fund. Thank you very much, Coog Parents. This comes to us from the WSU campus in Pullman. We also appreciate donations to help offset the production costs not covered by our grant. For those of you who um, left donations at the front door, thank you so much for your generosity. For those of you who might like to donate after the performance, please look for me in the lobby. Finally, if you have attended previous performances, welcome back. Sam, myself, Dan Wyatt, the owner and general manager of Kiggins Theater, all appreciate your support. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, welcome. For everyone, watch for the next and final performance of this, our fifth season. We anticipate a show in September in which we will cast our talents upon the great comedy shows of the golden age of radio. Our working title is Laugh Your Dial Off. We, it's just working. We plan to deliver mightily on that promise. Again, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Now please sit back, but don't get too comfortable because things are about to get weird. Here with tonight's performance of City of Weird is the Willamette Radio Workshop directed by Sam A. Mowry. Thank you for covering John's exit. Good evening, everyone. It's great to be back here in Vancouver. Tonight's offering is a sampling of pieces from the short story anthology City of Weird, published by Forest Avenue Press and inspired by that tiny hamlet across the river. You know the one. In appreciation for the fabulous audiences we've encountered here in Vancouver over the past five years, we have a special treat just for you to kick things off. A sort of miniature graphic novel. They used to call them comic books. Created by Jonathan Hill and augmented by the sound stylings of all of us here at the Willamette Radio Workshop.
And as you can see, great as well as easy access to the Galactic Highway. Well, it's a little more than I want to pay, but I hear the planet is up and coming, and there is off-street parking. How do you say gentrification in Martian? Little was editing the short story anthology City of Weird for Forest Avenue Press, she took as her inspiration classic pulp horror magazines like Weird Tales, full of monsters, phantoms, robots, spacemen, alternate universes, the dead, the undead, psychokinesis, curses, mad scientists, disembodied hands, spectral ectoplasm. Why do we love this stuff so much? Of course, the stories in this collection are set in Portland. Portland, home of bridges, extinct volcanoes, and Shanghai tunnels, where people knit cozies around street signs and hitch toy horses to old iron rings bolted in the curbs. So just what freaks out tattooed, unicycle-riding hipsters anyway? Hmm. Ravening slime molds from outer space? Mysterious biospheres overrun with newts, bar-hopping gorgons, man-eating octopi, Martian gentrification. Sure. But how about nuclear contamination or climate change or that overdue super-earthquake they won't stop talking about or the corruptibility of power or the power of hate? What about poverty, homelessness, death, disease, loneliness? Which frightens us more, the unknown or the known? WRW is proud to join GG and Forest Avenue Press in exploring fears real and imagined with four selections from City of Weird, adapted for radio by Cynthia J. McGeehan. Starting with those uh, killer slime molds from outer space in Transformation by Dan Dewees. And finally, a rocky planet covered in water. 
shrouded in vapors. Plenty of water. Much of it in the form of two large intersecting rivers. <laughs> the native moles are weak and insensate. They do not respond to attempts at communication. Take work, my innumerable molds. But that is in many ways what we want, isn't it? With greater diversity comes great accomplishment. <laughs> yes, yes, all my molds are ready. All except red. Red. Nothing. Nothing. And he was among the first to enter my chambers back on our home planet. His vibrations during the drift were so strong and clear. Yes, yes, he's definitely alive. He's lined his chambers just like the other mole. He seems healthy. Oh, maybe he's just nervous. After all, we are about to embark upon the transformation. My innumerable modes, I open my petals. Breathe. Your first breath since we floated away from our home. Your first breath in this new atmosphere. of my inner interior to the blank slate of the waiting planet, leaving your lines of glistening mucus in your wake to signify the start of the transformation. Up the story out of my way, Red. Oh, I can't wait to get out of here. I'm going to spread everywhere. I've got so many ideas to make you see. <laughs> yes, have fun, Azure. I wonder if I'll ever get to see him perform. Red? Are you okay, Red? Yeah, doing fine. You've been very quiet. Just thinking a bit. The time for thinking is over. It's time to act. We're here. Let's make our mark. Uh, oh, go on now, Red. The sun has risen and set. I know you're not used to the changing temperature out there. The night cold, the day warm... 
but I am no longer your home. <laughs> it's all ahead of you, Red. I know you'll do amazing things. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to help with the transformation. Sorry about that. What do you mean? Uh, We're here to make our mark on this planet, to transform its potential into a paradise of mold, our quilt of life. I guess transforming planets just isn't my thing. Well, then why, Red? Why enter my chambers? Why make the drift of not to be part of the transformation? Uh, crawling into you just seems natural. I mean, did you consider your options before calling out to moles that you had moist chambers in which they could grow to maturity during an interstellar drift? Or did you just kind of do it without really thinking? Incubating mind slime molds in our innumerable chambers while drifting the universe in search of an transformable planet is what pods do. So you just did it. No thoughts. Well, it is not about thinking or not thinking. This is how we leave our mark on the universe. This planet will hold the records of our lives, and that record will make our ancestors proud. How would they even know? Gone. Slipped away into the undergrowth. I guess he didn't care to hear my answer. Which is good, since I... I don't have one. Goodbye, my innumerable molds. <laughs> They're all gone. <laughs> I feel so empty. I wonder what will happen to me. What happens to a pod after the drift? No one's ever drifted back to tell us. Not one of them came back. Not one of the innumerable molds I incubated came back to check up on me. They just disappeared. And now my petals are falling off. One plunk by one plunk. First the outer petals, then my inner petals. My chambers are exposed. They're breaking down. My spongy walls drying up and falling off. My limpid floors crackling and giving way. I'm nothing but a spine of interlaced fibers. 
and I'm afraid. Oh! Oh! Oh my! The breeze carrying away my fibers, carrying away me! I'm floating with my fibers! Floating on the breeze, sensing everything at once. Oh, so many locations, so many environments. Oh, oh my signs, my signs. <laughs> oh, how they are transforming the area, overcoming the infestations of ambulatory vermin and their massive constellations of nests. Look at me, <laughs> and look what I've created. Look how I've transformed this tall pink column into a sparkling blue tower of slime. Look at my fantastic transformation. Check me out. <laughs> if you want to see what's possible horizontally, just stop by my spread. See how the panic vermin stumble away on their clumsy appendages. Try no well, try no more. <laughs> yes, my moles, yes, make me proud. <laughs> Spread, transform the planet, announce your triumphs, fulfill your destiny. <laughs> didn't recognize you. I'm innumerable fibers now. <laughs> uh, what are you up to? Spreading out? Not really. Oh. Uh, I think everyone has it covered. Uh, did you know there are other creatures here besides the two-legged vermin? In the ground, in the river. I can hear them communicating at night. What do they say? I don't know. Maybe we should try to learn their language. We're here to transform the planet to slime. I don't know if little organisms under the surface can really be a part of all of that. Well, you're not a slime mold anyway. Maybe I'll just make my own decisions. You don't have to be mean about it. Red, do you even like sliming? Why do you call me Red? Because you're Red. What do you want me to call you? Shackley. <laughs> what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. That's the point. Fine. I'll call you Shackley. <laughs> Whoops! Drifting off again. Hello, down there, slimes. <laughs> See how 
I devour the vermin nest from the inside out until they collapse? Oh, excellent work, Azure. Such a dramatic display, of course. Oh, well done, Velveteen. Well done. Oh, there's copper mist. Such a brilliant mold. Devouring an element that turns him into acid and then sliming those spindly vermin structures that cover the rivers so that they... <laughs> now that's the signature innovation. Acidizing before entering a new terrain and such eye-popping results. Magnificent! Plant life transformed to slime. Nests transformed to slime. Streams turned to slime. <laughs> Even the vapor in the air has been seeded with activated spores so that it's raining mist. Mold and slime, slime and mold, mold and... <clears throat> the greatness of our project's visible to all. It's only been seven days, but already the vermin nests have been leveled. The rivers changed to turgid, gelas turgid the gelatinous slime that no longer flows. The white atmosphere vapors turned to heavy brown gas. Red! Red, isn't it fantastic? The creatures are gone. This whole area is slime. My name is Shaklia. Sorry, force of habit. Everyone is having incredible success, and this is just the beginning. We have a whole planet in front of us. What happens when we cover the whole planet? Well... We'll know we did our job. For whom? For our species. For our families back home. Oh, they don't even know we're here. And they'll never find us. Unless you have some sort of plans to drift back home. Oh, I don't see how it's possible in your current state as innumerable free-floating fibers. It's not my fault that I no longer a petal-covered pod of innumerable moist chambers. Don't you have any appreciation for what I've been through? Like you said, you didn't choose to make the drift. It just happened naturally. So Making sure we covered this planet in slime has been the project of my life. But for what? I don't see why any other members of our species would need a planet already filled with slime. There's nothing left for other molds to do or you didn't even need me. 
Most of the molds in your chambers were redundant. <gasps> I incubated all of you equally. I had no way of knowing where we would land. And you have no way of knowing what comes next. Happiness. Satisfaction. Uh, you're a pod. It's natural for you to extend the realm of slimes. We're slimes. Whose realm are we extending? Why can't you just enjoy the moment? Because I don't know what this is for. Red, is it possible that you're being just a little bit paranoid? My name is Shirley. I know I'm slime, but I don't think anything good will come of sliming a whole planet. Agree to disagree. Woo! <laughs> sense of competition, my innumerable slime molds have prevailed. <laughs> They've infiltrated every terrain, from dry rocky zones to vast oceans filled with strange creatures. They've conquered every organism. The vermin have all drowned or boiled in slime. <laughs> Uh, what do you mean, that's it? Well, I mean, there's, there's no more areas to expand into. No more vermin to drown? No more nope. glorious feats to achieve? No more nope. structures to crawl over? Nope. Then I guess I'll just have to crawl over you. No, not if I slide under you first. I try, but I found a way to chemically alter myself so I can devour slime. Ah! <laughs> no, no, wait. Wait, my moles. My moles are devouring each other. Oh, is that right? A shadow. There's a shadow over the land. Something has moved between the planet and the sun, and, and I feel odd, uncertain, sad. Red! Red, is that you in that little rocky outcrop? Shetley. It's Shetley. Do you feel that shadow? Yes, I feel it. It's coming closer, deepening, growing darker and darker. That's nature. Oh, it could be anything. We don't know what it is. <laughs> That's my point. We've done great things, Red. I truly believe that. I wonder. What? If this was a nice place for the creatures we destroyed, I mean.
change. Now, there's a fear some of us can get behind, even in a former logging town turned mecca for creativity. You know you felt it. That moment when you see the chain link fence go up and the building go down, and then you can't even remember what was there before. But let's face it, every era in human history has suffered from growing pains. All the way back to 30,000 years BC. So how would Oregonians back then respond to innovation? Author Mark Russell posits some thoughts on this in Letters to the Oregonian in the year 30,000 BC. Editor. This is in response to Fire, Innovation of the Year, Oregonian 513. Last month, my partner and I were visiting her clan in California. One night over dinner, her uncle Frack said, You've got to try this. And lit a fire. <laughs> At first I was like, oh great, more yuppie chic from Uncle Thrack. <laughs> but I have to say, heating my mammoth rump with fire was life-changing. <laughs> Intentionally burning your food, or cooking as they call it, <laughs> really unlocks the mammoth flavor. I kept thinking how great it would be paired with Marionberry compote. Or live ants. So, last week, after dropping our son off at Cave Song Adventurers, we bought our own fire starter kit. <laughs> Our first attempt at cooking ended in a forest fire. <laughs> Sorry, tree people. But we chose to view this as a lesson and not a failure. And found that once you get the hang of it, cooking is not only fun, but also a powerful tool of self-expression. In fact, we found cooking with fire so rewarding that we opened a mammoth fusion food cart just west of the burned forest. <laughs> We've taken to calling this area West Burnside. <laughs> Signed, Crolac Rock Truck and Gorba Rock Truck. Proprietors, Wammoth Bammoth, thank you, Mammoth. <laughs> Dear Editor, regarding Fire Invention of the Year, 
If you ask me, this whole fire thing drips with homo sapiens privilege. I was picking berries on Soviet Island, and all the suburban hunter-gatherer types were like, Oh, I can't wait to sleep next to a fire. Oh, cooked food sure sounds nice. Oh, poor Grump wouldn't have been carried off by coyotes if he had fire. Besides the fact that, hey, coyotes gotta eat too, I think we ought to consider all the implications before wading ass deep into consumerist fantasies about cooked food and fire dancing. Okay, personally, when someone says fire, I hear gentrification. Do you really think that people in Yak Village are going to know what to do with fire? If fire becomes the norm, I guarantee you all the twig huts in the Pearl District will be gone five years from now. Also, when it comes to science, I feel like we're all, all we're really getting is marketing propaganda from Big Fire. From Big Fire. Did you know that fire creates a byproduct called smoke? Smoke is nothing but a gray-black plume of toxic chemicals. Alkaloids, carbon monoxide, the soul of wood demons. Okay, granted, no studies have linked smoke inhalation to demonic possession. But is the log demon something we should even be messing with? And the military applications of fire are, frankly, horrific. The tree people better hope they never cross anybody. If we upset the balance of power by weaponizing fire, I can only imagine what sort of crazy stuff the bogmen are going to come up with. But hey, enjoy your baked potato. Signed, Shaka, Hawthorne Caves. Sitting next to my fireplace, slow roasting, grass fed bison in the rock pot, I light my patio torches and peer across the lake. On a clear evening, you can see all the way to Yak Village. And as I watch those poor souls huddled together under their communal yak pelt for warmth, I think, hilarious! <laughs> If you can't figure out how awesome fire is and get yourself a piece of the action, then you have my sympathy, by which I mean contempt. I love living in Portland, lots of great hiking and artisanal marrow. But sometimes I feel like a hunter surrounded by gatherers. You know what I mean. I suppose I should feel guilty enjoying a rich life of caribou meat and indoor heating while so many go without. But instead, I feel strangely triumphant. Go for you. Sign, Bill. Make us sweet.
I can charge lizard as much as anybody. And carry torches around at night, well, you know, it just makes me feel important. But I'm afraid of what fire will mean for life here in Yak Village. I'm worried that we'll all start living in our own caves. That we'll all have our own little campfires and our own piles of cooked lizards. I'm worried that we won't curl up under the yak blanket anymore for no better reason than we don't have to. And I like you guys. I like how when someone is sleeping on a tree root, we all lift the yak pelt together and walk it over to a flat piece of ground so everyone can get a good night's sleep. <laughs> oh, I love how Gary stands up inside the yak head and makes funny noises coming out of its mouth. <laughs> and I like that little Zool doesn't get scared at night because we're all there under the pelt with her. Grok can make a living with his poetry and it's only because, after a long day of not selling books, the yak blanket is there waiting for him. Our village witch has a drinking problem. I, I, her magic is perfectly fine. She just gets a little weird after three kombuchas, you know? Anywhere else, people wouldn't take her seriously. Anywhere else, these people would be killed the moment it was discovered they couldn't make arrowheads. But here... Under the yak pelt, they are treasured. Yeah, fire's okay, I guess. I, I just don't want it to change who we are. More than anything else, people need a place to fail gently. <laughs> to me, that's what Portland is all about. <laughs> Signed, Grub, Yak Village. Huddling together under the yak pelt. Another victim of progress. If it's not fire, it's the horseless carriage, magic lantern shows, the talkies, gluten-free smoothies, or online dating apps. We've turned our phones into multimedia entertainment boxes. We've digitized our social lives with emojis and Facebook, and we've devolved from the speeches of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's fireside chats to... Well, tweets. It can really make you downright nostalgic. This next piece is a beautiful mix of nostalgia and futurism. As I read it, I found myself thinking of my favorite scene from the AMC TV show Mad Men, in which Don Draper is pitching a wheel slide projector. Nostalgia, he says, literally means the pain from an old wound, a twinge in your heart, far more powerful than memory alone. The carousel projector, he says, is a time machine. It goes backwards and forwards. It takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It lets us travel the way a child travels, around and around and back home again, to a place where we know we are loved. Andrew Stark's poignant story, A Code for Everything, conjures the feeling so strongly that we couldn't resist a little nod to Don Draper in our sound design. Some things transcend technology, progress, and even global apocalypse.
parents bring me back to their 2,350-square-foot Cape Cod at 45.52 degrees north, minus 122.61 degrees west in Laurelhurst. They walked me in and set me down. Look what we brought you, honey. My olfactor meter picks up 1,622 different odors, including jojoba in the woman's perfume and alarm pheromones emitting from the child. He peeks from around the corner. I wag my tail in. Although I understand 50 languages, my communication is limited to barks, owls, and mammalian semiosis. Eventually, he approaches and strokes my head. The tactile sensors lining my skull allow me to respond. I close my eyes. Likewise, a number of sensory corpuscles near the surface of Barney's hand send discriminative sensations traveling up the posterior columns of his spine and into the medial luminescence of his brainstem, causing the electrical membrane potential of certain cells to rise and fall, opening channels and allowing for an inward flow of sodium ions. Once the sensations reach his medulla oblongata, a number of axons synapse with a number of neurons. He smiles. Good boy! <laughs> I am called ASICS, Autonomous Canine Emulation System. I am a robotic domestic pet substitute designed by Takumi Fukuda of the National Institute of Advanced Industrial Science and Technology in the Ibakuri Prefecture of Japan. Fukuda designed me to replicate a pug, which, according to the AKC, is a breed best described by the phrase multum in pavo, which means a lot in a small space. Pugs are known to be soothing, friendly, and attentive, the perfect family pet. I weigh 95.2 ounces, measure 22.4 inches long, and my motor-based shaped alloy body is covered in hypoallergenic synthetic white fur. I am also available in fawn, apricot fawn, silver swan, and black. I am powered by a radioisotoped thermoelectric generator, which is housed inside a graphite shell in my chest. Fukuda and his team built me using technology similar to NASA's Curiosity 4 and my three LIDAR sensors along with my advanced GPS receiver, the same used by the United States Department of Defense, make it impossible for me to get lost. I remember, adapt, and learn. Depending on availability, I ship within two to three weeks. I operate on a dinernal rhythm. In the morning, I wake with Barney. In the afternoon, I stare out the living room window and wait for the child to arrive home from school. At night, we sit and watch the evening news with his parents. The big one, too, of 2025 and its repercussions are still trending. A historic seismic event has ruptured the San Andreas Fault from southern to northern California, sending much of the west coast slipping into the Pacific like shells of a dying glacier. Tremors were felt from Mexico to Canada and as far inland as Colorado. The entire Los Angeles basin has folded into the Mojave Desert like a fist. Countless dead. Agricultural devastation. America in chaos. 
In the wake of the recent historic earthquake, Portland, Oregon has emerged as a hub of urban farming, and through vegetable production, chickens and goats, Portlanders continue operating self-sufficiently, while much of the nation, palsied with fear, migrates to space, colonizing an independent biosphere orbiting somewhere inside cancer's beehive cluster. The citizens of New America F-12 operate under an egalitarian mix of socialism and capitalism, acclimating well to the controlled ecological environment's artificiality, astroturf lawns, digitized horizons, but there is corruption, and the occasional civil war inevitably erupts. It will only be a matter of time before they wreck the space bubble too. I sleep in the child's bed, nestled against his body. I simulate breathing. He takes me on walks through rural Laurelhurst Park. At the 220,000 mile mark, my legs require serious maintenance. He speaks to me, calls me friend. I watch him interact with people, and all the while I'm encoding and decoding subtleties in non-verbal human communication using wavelet transformation, slouching, towering, the crossing of arms and the uncrossing of legs. And while it takes most humans one-tenth of a second to gauge a first impression, it takes me about a hundred. I record through digital dictation the rate, pitch, and prosodic intonation in the child's voice. My visual and hearing sensors help me evaluate the situation And through non-invasive auscultation, I can listen to the low-frequency spectral vibrations excited by the child's internal organs, thereby diagnosing his physical state. I know when the boy feels threatened, my teeth, Fukuda mentioned at press conference back in 2020, could chew through the Eiffel Tower. He teaches me. Fetch, boy, fetch. Good boy. Roll over. Roll over. That's it, boy. Now, play dead. Play dead. My algorithms on my internal computer allow me to improve on these tasks automatically, unsupervised, through experience. Barney grows older, he pays me less attention. This takes some adapting. The life cycle of the human being is brief and isolated. Children typically are full of wonder and prelapsarian desire. I remember setting my own oscillation in tune with Barney's, and we were both cognitively and computationally synchronized. <laughs> And it's as if the environment in all its toxicity acts as a limiting device, grinding that wonder down. All of the aces like me across the world, some 400,000 produced annually, learn by a sort of numerological extrapolation to sync their circadian rhythm with the heart rate of their owner. Once this heart rate expires and the owner dies, the unit is contractually obligated to sound a fiber optic alarm that notifies the research facility headquartered in Japan. (coughs) 
The ACEs will then be shipped back and recycled. The microprocessors removed, their memories wiped. But I lament the very idea that I will outlive Barney. This thought surprises me, since I'm not supposed to feel sadness. Doubly so, since I'm not supposed to feel surprise. When Barney returns home from Oregon State University, there is a change in him. A sense of something restored. Barney! Hey, boy! How you been, boy? Come here, boy! <laughs> He's excited to see me. We run around in the backyard. I show him how dexterous I've gotten at fetching him, rolling over, and playing dead. This brings him joy, happiness, with the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran called your sorrow unmasked. I, in turn, feel its biomimetic I have observed the arc of a human's life, their emotional phrases, phases forecasting the plaintive drifts. I've learned to remain close at certain times and distant at others. It's an ever-changing ecosystem, the presence of a human. Barney takes me back to college with him, and we've never been happier. We live in a split level at 45.49 degrees north, minus 123.12 degrees west, outside Forest Grove, where Barney works in some capacity for Pacific University. 426 days later, he moves us to a beach house at 46.19 degrees north and minus 123.81 degrees west. After a particularly devastating breakup with a girl who worked at a brewery in town, we relocate to a ranch-style house in the Columbia River Gorge at 45.70 degrees north, minus 121.56 degrees west. It's snow 46.19 degrees north, minus 123.81 degrees west, and the isolation is hard on Barney, but I enjoy the river, or what's left of it. 17,531 days later, we end up at 45.38 degrees north, minus 121.90 degrees west. Curved porch, trumpet vines, snow puckered in the misty thaw. <coughs> Barney is an old man, limited mobility, the result of accumulating damage to proteins, lipids, and nucleic acids. He has grown, developed, and declined. His parts have worn out. A nurse makes the 47.3-mile drive out here from Portland every three days to communicate with, feed, and bathe him. I will never understand the sadness of evolution, and Barney will never understand the sadness of its lack. <laughs> against his body and I simulate breathing he makes a noise a rattle and I look up at his face I don't want the old man to feel a machine beside him a robot a computer an insentient piece of engineering I want him to feel something more than that 
This thought surprises me. Oh, I love you, Barney. I search my lexicon of one million distinct words, sift through databases and mainframes and petabytes of memory. 864,000 results in 0.58 seconds. Barney and I lazing on Short Sands Beach. Hiking Mount Thielsen. So many nights pretending to beg for food, we both knew I couldn't eat. Trying to create the illusion of organic companionship. And then I realize, combing through all the mathematical results and isomorphisms, that love, or... 0110110000110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110110
sense. And when things don't make sense, that puts me on edge. I'm cleaving the last bomb slobber from a pipe blast, getting it ready for the next bomb as I watch her glide from the door to the bar. She's at least five foot ten, maybe six foot, but with those long getaway sticks, it's hard to be sure. There's no doubt that she could be the death of a man, but that man would still be lucky in my book. What do you need? I'm looking for the fixer. It's been a while since I heard that name, but it still comes hard. Sends me back years, back to when I was sent home from Iraq on a stretcher. I didn't work in the mailroom over there, if you know what I mean. Came back half smashed and soul broke. And I was able to walk again. I missed the danger. After daily firefights, ambushes, and mortar attacks, well, all the normal was hard to care about. So I threw myself into the Portland underground and was soon known as someone who fixed problems for people who are not... Let's say, pugilistically inclined. <laughs> for a while I was the people's champion, but I messed up big. I actually fell for the last one, and it almost killed me. That's another story. It took ten years, but maybe I finally have all those demons on a leash. And I'm not ready to let them go again. The fixer doesn't live here anymore, doll. My name is Elena. I need help with problem. They say you do that. Her big green eyes kill me. Inside them I see all the way back to original sin. <laughs> she opens with the eyes and then comes out fighting with a highly practiced combination that puts me on the ropes, pushing her hair behind her ear. A well-timed sly glance lip bite combination. I'm reeling from the jabs, waiting for the haymaker that'll send me to the canvas. And she does just that by running two fingers across the tops of my scarred, calloused hands. Uh, they say that you would help me. They say that you're very mm, resourceful. Is that what they say? <laughs> she slides an envelope with some greenbacks across the bar. This is down payment. I pick it up to see how much my reputation's worth, but before I can, her soft touch changes, and she's squeezing my hand with more strength than I figured her to have. She hits me with those beautiful green sparklers again. This should be easy, job. I want you to simply scare off an admirer. She places a photo on the bar. An honest-to-God five-by-seven photo. Who even uses these anymore? <laughs> Nowadays, it's all email, or they show you off the small screen of their phone. But no, this is a black-and-white photo of a tall white man with a face like a chewed ham sandwich in a high-colored trench coat. He's from small town outside St. Petersburg. So if he's giving you problems, why don't you tell the popo? Uh, it's a little complicated. It's a family matter. Sure. Families are complicated. All you have to do is scare him off. You're such a big man. You talk to him and he'll go running like little dog. She reaches into a pocket and pulls out a napkin with bubble letter dates, times, and names of strip clubs. I know all too well. Here's my dance schedule. He shows up to watch me. Okay, doll. I'm in. She leans over the bar, grabs my collar, and pulls me close. A wave of lavender and jasmine washes over me like a river baptism. And we're so close, I feel her warm breath on my nose and cheeks. We stay like this for a moment before she whispers in the same voice Gabriel used before sending Joan of Arc to war. 
Thank you. And she's gone and I'm back. Already feeling more alive than I have in years. But $2,000 for a simple stalker case? This is bad. My first case back and I start off by biting more than I can chew. Keep Portland weird. Sure. Otherworldliness only limited by Joseph Smith and Bob Barker. Yes, every generation or so, the one true God known by many names sends down one divine sperm and bam! Another conception bordering on the immaculate. Of course, in our modern times, no one believes in poor Jimmy, so he spends his afternoons driving his 1960 cherry red convertible AMC Rambler to the poppy lounge and drinking himself into martyrdom. I use him as an informant because he tends to know pretty much everything. Jimmy looks much like a northeast Portland messiah should. Long brown hair, long beard, thick-framed glasses, overwashed and oversized tour t-shirt from some obscure band, tight black jeans and combat boots he kept after a stint in the Merchant Marines. I've been waiting for him ever since the Russian firecracker came in. He shoots me a sign of the cross, and I know to get him a Dumble Hendrix and four limes. I know, I know, it was my first vision of the day. Should I take the job? <laughs> Seems like you already did. Well, you should have seen her in person, Jimmy. Oh, don't worry. I'll see her before it's over. Where do I start? Tomorrow, Sean. I said where, not when, Jimmy. Big hair dance. But today, pour me another and... And one for yourself while you're at it. <laughs> you're gonna need it. Big Hair Dan used to work in tea, yellow pizza, and young trade guy, he's just an unusually tall, gently pizza shop manager. Shorts pockets are always filled with dime bags of cannabis strains with names like Northern Lights, Blue Dream, Granddaddy Purple. I was never big into the herb, but if you're a player in the Portland Underground, you need to know the names in recreational drug sales. Big Hair Dan is the head of his crew and controls most of the pot market from Alaska, Seattle, Portland to Humboldt County. God's honest truth is... Big Hair Dan's a Sasquatch. Shaved everywhere except for his dress in order to fit into society. Bigfoot and his brothers have the best meat because they grow it organically without pesticides, hydroponics, and anything unnatural. They have a network that goes all over the unexplored remote Pacific Northwest. Those big flat sightings you see on YouTube, just weed deliveries to Big Hair Dan and his boys. I used to work in pizza places and coffee shops, but now that pot's legal, I switched to the dispensary business. I caught up to an brother's cannabis club on 36th Division. I sent the latest stalker photo ahead. 
not a good idea to show up on an Something like a high-end dentist's office. The place is filled with Sasquatch in varying degrees of hair growth stages. And since they're hidden from the public, they stand at their full height and don't hide their strength. We walk into his office in the back. It's just the two of us now. The room is a white cave with light maple hardwood floors. Empty, except for a lacquered cedar stump fashioned into some sort of throne in the very middle of the room. All the gleaming white walls have giant framed prints of Portland street artists Fasai, Adam Brock, and Faith 47. He climbs up on his throne, knuckles first, gets comfortably cross-legged. So you sure you want in on whatever this is, Sean? I pull out five folded $20 bills, paper clipped in half, and toss it to him. Okay, okay, but listen, man, you know what a Vodianoi is? Some type of little blue pill? Oh, no, man. Vodianoids are water ghosts, man. They're the souls of the drowned. Real mischievous, from what I understand. And he's one of them. Yeah, man, he's been seen around the strip clubs, you know. Seems to be looking for someone, from what my guys can tell. Makes sense. So no matter what you do, man, don't try to fight this guy by a body of water. Got it. I mean, that's where he gets his power from. Okay. I'm serious, dude. I said I got it. Thanks, Dan. Not messing around. <laughs> it takes all night, a few hours into the morning, before I find the stalker inside the Acropolis. Elena dances down into the poker machines, watching as the Elena and two other girls rotate through an hour's worth of songs. The first shift finishes, and as the last girl rakes up the ones on the dance stage, the dark figure stands and exits. I follow. By the time I'm out the door, there's no sign of him. But he leaves behind a sandy film in every viscous footprint. This trail leads me north on foot down McLaughlin Boulevard and then west to the edge of the unused Acropolis Annexes building's parking lot. There's a light mist that gives the single street light in the middle of the gravel lot a yellow halo. Vapor in the air increases until it's almost like an ocean spray. I breathe deep and smell the pleasant scent of petrichor. But then there's something else. A rancid odor just... Underneath, slowly getting stronger, big hair Dan's words come back to me. No matter what you do, yeah, but what if the water's in the air? This warning makes me pause. Is two grand worth it? 
No. But seeing gratitude in Yelena's emerald sparklers would be. It's watching me from somewhere. I can feel it like I'd feel a hundred thousand ants crawling up and down my spine. Johnson. Creek. Damn it. Ambush. Quickly, I reach into my back pocket and take out boxcar my sap. It's a long horse leather pocket, stitched closed with dozens of thick lead washers the size of silver dollars inside. It's got me out more than a few tight places in the past. I smack the open palm of my left hand, and the slap echoes through the bushes, letting him know that I know what's about to happen. He steps out of the darkness. But he's still a shadow, like the light doesn't even want to touch that face. Used bubble gum under a diner table with sprigs and patches of what must have been a thick beard at one time randomly sticking out. But those eyes... I'm not prepared for those eyes. They're big, dark, and fathomless. Tonight, God will hear your prayers, and I will see your tears. Bring it, ugly. I lunge, but he lets me come straight at him. I swing so hard his head should exit his shoulders, but instead he turns and leers over me. I come back with Boxcar the other way, really landing a whack on his left cheek that would stagger a mule, but still nothing. I swear I get six or seven belts in there before his hand shoots out at me like a striking diamondback, and his ice grip closes around my throat. My fists beat wildly at his one arm, and then I realize my legs are dangling off the ground. The world around me stretches until everything I see and hear becomes so thin I begin to tear away, leaving nothing but the dreamless black of a forced unconsciousness. Time slows. Sound hits me one wave at a time. Yes, when he turns his head toward a voice, the streetlight reflects off the left half as his long face. I really see it for the first time. Dark, cavernous eye sockets too high up and too close together. Splotches of gray and blue dead skin swollen and bloated, looking like it's left submerged for weeks. Out of his black eyes flows a heavy stream of tears down into the tangled wet patches of beard. I use his hesitation to put all my strength into pulling away. I give it every last ounce I have and yank at his arm. Handfuls of material rip off and turn to silt in my hands. I keep grabbing and pulling. The stark odor of rotting earth fills my mouth and nostrils. <laughs> Ice-cold fingers close, caving my esophagus. The light drains from my vision, giving everything to near total darkness. <laughs> His head jerks in her direction, pelting my face with some sort of foul-smelling globs. I use his lapse of attention to escape his frozen grip. I land on all fours. <coughs> the force of the winds picks up and makes his robes flat behind him, revealing a tall, horrendous sight. Through tears in his moldy boots, I see what I can only describe as talons. My gaze runs up from there, and I see the hurricane gusts making strips of his saturated, greasy skin flap angrily over shiny midnight blue scales underneath. Three long, glistening gases on each side of his neck open and close almost convulsively under straggling patches of thin beard, and his eyes, dark caverns shaped like holes in the brick wall guarding the city of Dis. I'm going out, it isn't gonna be like this. Not on my knees. 
I dig the balls of my feet into the gravel, set up like a track sprinter, and launch my whole weight into his stomach. Mere freezing slime coats the side of my face and neck. Smell again. Smell. Caying. Fish. But I keep pumping my legs, pushing him backward until he falls on his ass with me on top. Next comes a dozen ham-fisted blows in rapid succession straight to his massive rotted teeth. I have the advantage. No man can keep the lights on with a walloping like this. But he throws me off like dirty laundry. Before he does, I put my hand under what feels like a small chain he's wearing around his neck. It snaps. I'm skidding to a stop of the rocks and dirt. He's over me, kicking my chest in. I hear cracks, and I know it's the cartilage ripping between my ribs. I roll out of the way, open a swollen eye, and see Jimmy's 1960 AMC Rambler convertible smack right into the big nasty drowned Russian ghost. Now, he may be some sort of supernatural creature who out-toughed me, but he can't out-tough good old Detroit engineering and ingenuity. That massive cherry red cast iron and steel knocks him down like wheat under a sickle. Get a move on, kids! Before I know it, Yelena's helping me into the front bench seat. The door closes and we're heading north, back into the city. Jimmy, this is Yelena. Yelena, Jimmy. Yelena, hell. That's Grand Duchess Anastasia Nikolavina, daughter of Russian Tsar Nicholas II. And that guy kicking your ass. I pop open the lock and I tore off the water ghost. The one just like her. That's his big ugly tongue looking at me on the right. And her beautiful face on the left. He's really gonna want to get that back. Next time on The Fixer, while Rasputin's amulet kept him alive after being beaten nearly to death, gutted, poisoned, shot, frozen, and mostly drowned, Anastasia's locket kept her young and beautiful. Now she means to put an end to his repeated attempts to take her back to the motherland and help Putin create a one-world order. Will the fixer have the grit to do what must be done? Will Jimmy stay sober long enough to help save the world? And what role will the Bigfoot brother and the medicinal marijuana play? Find out next time on The Fixer. Special thank you to publisher Laura Sandville and editor Gigi Little of Forest Avenue Press. Along with the authors of City of Weird who are here, please stand up so you can get to your mouth. Let them hear it, folks. If you're craving more weird-inspired tales, you can purchase a copy of the book right out in the lobby from one of our local bookstores. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are the Glamour Radio Workshop, and we love old-time radio and new-time radio, and we love doing it for you. Thank you so much for seeing us, and we will be doing the same show again at the UFO Festival in McMinnville, and back here in September with Laugh Your Dialogue. Thank you very much. Until next time, we remain obedient to you all. Thank you.
Terry Gall and the ASRN Show, live and direct from the Kiggins Theater in Vancouver, Washington. Thank you, everybody, for listening to American Senior Radio Network in Vancouver, Washington, providing news and information and much more to the visually impaired, disabled, and seniors. Hopefully, we'll get a word from John F. Barber from Washington State University right here on the American Senior Radio Network and the Jerry Gall Show live and direct from the Kiggins Theater in Vancouver, Washington. I would like to thank John F. Barber and everybody here on ASRN. You've been listening to the... City of Weird, Washington State University and the CMDC program at the historic Higgins Theater, Willamette Radio Workshop and Sam A. Mowry and Reimagined Radio. Special thanks to Cook Parents for their generous support, the CMDC program. Also, the Kick and Cedar and Dan and much more. ASRN gonna wrap up here in a few minutes. Have a good night. brand new audio dramas through the Mutual Audio Network. Subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or iHeartRadio today. There's eight different podcasts, one for each day of the week and genre, and the Mutual Audio Network broadcast feed so you don't miss a day of your favorite shows. Subscribe to Mutual Audio tonight. Good night!